here's the bit where I remind you that nothing we discuss during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets. And now, on with the show. People always tell me, you should have your money working for you. Because you send your money out there working for you, a lot of times it gets fired. You go back there, what happened? I had my money, it was here, it was working for me. Yeah, I remember your money. We had to let him go. Welcome everybody to another edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour, a long overdue edition of the Super Terrific Happy Hour, and bring the super and terrific, and the happy as always... Delightful Stephanie Pombo. Oh, hey Steph, how are you? Goodness, it's so great to finally get to catch up with you. I don't even want to venture a guess on how long it's been since we did this. I know exactly how long it's been. Too damn long. That's how long. <laughs> That's how long. We've been swapping texts backs and forwards and we had a couple of near misses in getting this together and various things undermined us. But here we are, yes. December 26th. All the fun out the way so we can be a couple of humbugs. A bit better late than never. Exactly. I mean, it's not too late to be a Grinch, is it? No, I don't think so. I think so. So, hey, look, there's there's so much to talk about. Um, and uh, you've been on fire recently. So all the, your last three or four pieces have just been fantastic. And I know you hate me saying that, so you can just button your yap or I can edit this out <laughs> after when you're going, oh, my God, would you stop? But um, there are things that we can't not talk about. Recessions, pivots, inflation. You know, there is, there's so many things that, that we need to kind of talk about as we kind of end this year and going to whatever the hell awaits us for. Right. <laughs> Let's start with inflation because this is somewhere that you and I have kind of been not quite in sync over the last sort of right. year about what, what happens from now, which is which is a rare thing and always fascinating for me because it makes me <laughs> run away and start thinking, all right, how, what the hell have I got wrong here? If Steph's saying something different, I need to figure this out. No, I'm so, the one who gets so, nervous when that happens for sure. All right, all right so let's, <laughs> let's agree to agree that we're both nervous. So <laughs> let, let's, let's, let's talk about inflation. Let's talk about your views of where we are right now in the because obviously the the numbers are starting to come down a little bit and that changes attitudes even if it doesn't necessarily change minds about stuff so where where are you right now with the whole inflation debate well i guess um mathematically it's going to be pretty easy for us to get to the fed's target really pretty quickly you know if you do a spreadsheet and just run the numbers we could be at 2% on the cpi by june um, which is, you know, fairly, fairly uh, quickly relative to what we've been living through over the last year. But, you know, uh, that's sort of a pyrrhic victory, obviously, because for the average consumer, having endured massive inflation over the last, you know, year, um, having those prices go up at a slightly slower pace right, right. from their already usurious level is not going to bring relief. But, you know, this is, we only focus on these numbers because, we got to get figure out when the Fed is going to do its pivot. So those headline numbers, again, mathematically look like they're going to come down. But, you know, I think where our real debate hinged was on whether it was going to be entrenched or not, which would be a function of um, whether we saw these wage increases that allowed uh, consumers to then absorb the increase yeah. in prices. And then, you know, one guy gets a wage increase and, and then suddenly everyone else is doing it and it just feeds on itself. And obviously that's been the Fed's main concern. And we have seen um, wage growth obviously accelerate, although in recent months it started to ease off a little bit. And I guess, you know, my view on inflation now, other than just the, the math and the Pyrrhic victory that we'll get there, is that... Um, I think the employment shoe is going to drop uh, yeah. big time, and and that will help to um, sort of limit the ability of employees to demand these price increases. I mean, they've been very entitled till now and being able to sure. demand pretty much anything they wanted. But, you know, you're seeing unemployment claims tick up and layoffs tick up, and obviously employment is generally the last thing to turn um, and I've been tracking for a long time, you know, since February, basically, this gap between the household survey and the payroll survey, yada, yada, <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Well, no, but, you, no, but, you, but don't yada, yada that because I've been following you following that. And 
you were literally the only person that I saw that was talking about this stuff, and, and it's hugely important. So just, just talk a little bit about that gap and, and what you have been following, because I, I, I don't think people are aware of this. Yeah, well, I think that, you know, Wall Street finally started to wake up to it last month with the, yeah. with the payroll survey versus the household survey. But we've had a stretch there where... Um, you know, just really briefly, there are two measures of employment. When they do the monthly employment report, they have the payroll survey, which is just a tally, as it sounds, of corporate, you know, company payrolls. Um, the household survey is a separate survey, and it's the one they base the unemployment rate off of. But that survey, basically, they call up a household and they say, are you working? How many people in the household are working? Blah, blah, blah. So um, those two surveys are better at capturing different things. Obviously, the household survey tends to pick up more small business employment because there are a lot of smaller companies that can't, you know, don't have run a a payroll through one of the big payroll processing companies, so they don't get included. So what happens is that those two surveys tend to part company at turning points in the economy. When the economy is picking up and small businesses are starting to form and grow, the household survey tends to outpace the payroll survey and vice versa. And so what we're seeing now is that vice versa, where the household survey has been really weak. Um, In fact, in many months, it's actually been negative while the payroll survey has been positive. Um, And it just eventually that reality catches up to the payroll survey. And we'll see, they'll probably do some pretty big revisions when they get around to the benchmark revisions in the first quarter. But we're talking like millions, right? We're not not talking... 10,000 here. No, and the and the gap is expanding. So starting, I picked March uh, as the starting point to look at because that's when the Fed first started raising rates. And that's really when the divergence started to yeah, yeah. evolve. So starting in March, from March till the latest report for November, that eight-month stretch, it's 2.7 million is the gap <laughs> between the two. So that's that's not an insignificant number. Um, and then in the last two months alone, the gap is one million. So the, the gap is expanding. Yeah. And it's critical. I mean, this is all wonky, you know, in the weeds number stuff, but it's crucial because the Fed seems to be myopically focused on the payroll survey. In fact, in the FOMC presser, Powell went on and he actually named, yeah. I think what is it was payrolls were up 267, whatever the number was, I forget. Um, so it's sort of, we can get into this later, but it makes me wonder, are they using that as cover to tighten more aggressively or do they really not realize that they're looking at a number that's completely, you know, wrong, basically? (laughs) So, you know, if the household survey is the right number, then you've got a much cooler labor market than that the payroll survey suggests and people believe. I want to come back to that theory of yours, because when you laid it out last week, I thought, Ah, she might be onto something here. Oh. Um, but before we do that, I just want to go back to something you said at the beginning of that, when you when you talked about how how we could possibly see that 2% target in June. And let, let's just talk about that because, again, there'll be people listening to this that kind of go, uh, you know, I don't see how that can happen. I mean, obviously the base effects are the main thing, but just, just run us through that transition because it seems right now, you know, to get to get from eight to seven, everyone's cheering from the rafters, but seven to two... Right is a very non-consensus call. People are talking about how that you know the Fed might need to change their target to three and then we can get to four and be okay kind of thing. But but you're talking about getting back close to two by June, which is going to, uh, I'm sure a lot of people are sitting there going, wait, 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 hang on, don't let it get, go back to that. So I'm going right, to go back right. to it. Well, there are a lot of things. As with employment, you know, these uh, numbers tend to lag what's going on on the ground. And one of the biggest components, roughly, uh, you know, 35% or so of the CPI is shelter. And obviously, we've seen the housing market was the first thing to get absolutely whacked. I mean, the sales, the volumes have collapsed. I mean, we're down 30, 40% in new and existing home sales from the peak. So price is going to follow that. And if you go back and look, I'm trying to remember the exact math, but when the housing bubble peaked in 2006, October 2006 was the peak of the housing bubble, the CPI shelter component didn't peak until 18 months later. Mm-hmm. So you had a, a you know a year and a half where the inflation numbers were telling you we had this really hot housing inflation. And in reality, people were already going into negative equity and, you know, the crap had already hit the fan. So um, I think that lag is obviously going to start to feed through to the CPI. 
Um, but basically, it's just, you know, if, if you assume that we get 0.1 or 0.2 percent gains, let's say, in the CPI each month between Months, now yeah. and June, that's the math I'm doing. So it's obviously, you know, it's you're making a lot of grand assumptions that, you know. That no, no. But, but, but when I saw that table that you put together, it smacks you in the face because these aren't wild assumptions, right? They're assumptions, but they're not crazy assumptions. And and when you look at that, you realize how quickly you could see that back to those kind of levels, which seems so counterintuitive, just from kind of soaking in all the headlines, just the conversations everyone's having with each other around the around the Christmas dinner table, all that stuff. It just seems such a counterintuitive call. Yeah. Well, what's interesting is to recall how quickly inflation can turn. I mean, just as rapidly as it went from two to nine, which happened yeah. very, very shortly, it can go the other way as well. And we saw this in 2008, 2009. In, uh, I guess it was July of 2008, the CPI was 5.6%. I forget that. I forget that inflation yeah. was that yeah. hot back then. Um, but it was. And so we were running almost 6% inflation. 12 months later, the CPI was minus 2.1. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, granted, you had a financial crisis, but it, that's sort of the crux of my thesis, too. We haven't even got, you know, I'm just doing math and talking about if we have the status quo right now. If the asset bubble continues to deflate, then the case for even weaker inflation readings gets stronger. So, yeah, I go back to that spike in the chart. And as you say, it's really easy to forget we had those kind of numbers. But we did. And, and that collapse in CPI happened in a, let's call it a normally functioning world. And that's that's the kind of, for me, that's the X factor. Because I look at your numbers and I look at how you see this thing potentially playing out. And it all makes perfect sense, except for this variable that we just can't measure. And that is how bad supply chains are and and where the problems are going to be because i'm not you know i would have thought things like um the car industry and and while it is slowing down there are still from kind of channel checks that i've done there are still significant delays in getting new cars because of chips and that kind of stuff so you've got that on the one side and so it's really difficult to figure out how this works except for the fact that if we do get the unemployment thing it's going to cascade through into all these um, supply chain shortages aren't going to matter anymore because no one's going to want to buy anything. And then you have the matter of inventories, which is you know something else that you've constantly kept one eye on. So where are we in the inventory cycle? Well, I you know we haven't made a lot of progress in bringing down. I think in in some areas in retail we're starting to bring down the inventories. I mean, I, I'm sure you experience this, and you're probably not as much of an online shopper as I am, but, you know, the 40% the off sales started long before the yeah, holiday yeah. season. So, I mean, you were getting stuff 40% off weeks before uh, Black Friday and then, you know, even in the run-up to Christmas. Um, I actually, here's a little anecdote for you. It's going to sound obnoxious, but... I send my parents, I never know what to get them, so I send them a tin of caviar every year. And now I'm in the situation where I kind of, I got to send them a tin of caviar every year, <laughs> yeah, regardless yeah. of what You buy one tin of caviar exactly. and you're on the hook forever. So, um, so I went to do that this year and they were doing a deal. You buy one tin, you get one tin half off. So, okay. I mean, that's caviar. I mean, you would think that customer base would have a fairly inelastic yeah. demand for it, right? Right. Yeah. Guilty daughters, basically. Right? There's lots of those. <laughs> oh, my God. So anyway, but I mean, that's just a, a silly, uh, small example. But it, you are seeing, um, you know, real deflation in, in some of those areas, especially apparel, for example, where yeah. they had built up a lot of inventories. And um, you see all the articles about how a lot of the big box stores, I think, were trying to not order as big because they were still trying to yeah. move the inventories. So we'll see after the holidays how they've done on that. But, you know, it's been begrudging. It's been begrudgingly slow in, in moving all those um, excess supplies that they had built up. So it went from like famine to feast, basically. Yes. Yeah. No, I, it's funny. I, I I saw that same thing because I've I've ended up on all kinds of mailing lists. I have no idea how from apparel companies that I honestly don't own anything in my wardrobe that they've ever made. But somehow I'm on these lists, and I've been shocked at how. I mean, I get an email every single day from some of these companies with you know seventy five percent off and 
40% off and, you know, last day of the 75% off sale and then a week later you're getting a new 75% off sale. It's remarkable to me how desperate feeling the whole thing is. Yeah, but as you said, I mean, there are pockets, you know, then you look at autos, for example, where you're saying you you rely on semiconductor chips and you can't get them yeah. and, or supply chain issues. Um, so that continues to be a problem. And I guess, you know, this whole China situation where they're in lockdown and then they try to open and then five minutes later, you know, they're back in lockdown. I mean, what do you think happens there? Do you have any thoughts on how that plays well, in, out? Yeah, interestingly, I... I I went to see Louis Garve in Vancouver recently and, and spent a day talking to him. And um, it was fascinating talking to Louis. You know, I'm, I'm a huge fan of Louis. And he's, he's, to many people, he's just this China apologist. Um, but the reality when you talk to him is, you know, he's anything but that. He's trying to make his clients money, which kind of keeps his opinions rooted in as, as pragmatic and honest a, a, a direction as he can. And the point he made about China was, look, you know, the one thing that Xi Jinping is concerned about is social stability. And he said to me at the time of all those protests, he said, this is zero COVID's done. This is finished now because they cannot manage this. And they, and they, and it's the one thing that they can't afford to let get out of control. And sure enough, you know, within a couple of weeks, zero COVID's done. And whilst we're, we're seeing the infection rate spike, you know, Louis said to me, look, just you have the roadmap for China here, but just you need to look at it through a magnifying glass. Every country's done this. They've had the same thing. Airline seats are going to go through the roof and hotels are going to be unable to get booked and people are going to travel and everyone's going to get sick and people are going to be short of the workforce because no one can come to work. It's, it's exactly the same. Supply chain issues, the whole thing. And so, you know, I, I think we're going to see exactly that in China. Uh, on the one hand, you're going to have, you know, it's kind of a nightmare because you're going to have the the worst case, you're going to have a huge surge in demand for energy, which is probably the last thing that the world needs right now. And then you're going to have uh, a massive cutback in supply of goods to overseas because the factories, everyone gets sick and they can't come to work and they have to shut down assembly lines and stuff. So I don't think China's going to help in any way, shape or form, to be honest, as it opens. I think it's going to actually be more problematic for the rest of the world than it is a good thing. It'll be decent domestically because people travel and already we're seeing, um, you know, the, the look at the casino stocks in Macau, which is what Louis was talking to me about. Huh. You look at those stocks and they're going up, you know, 10% a day. Wow. Because suddenly the borders are open, and guess what? We we had we had six months of pent up savings in in the West. They got three years of it in China. So you know you, they're going to see domestic supply chain problems there, and and huge surges in demand, and no goods, and what have you. Um, I suspect they'll prioritise local deliveries from factories rather than send stuff overseas. So I don't think it's clear um, exactly what happens, but I don't think that China opening is going to be necessarily positive for the rest of the world. I have to wait and see. Huh. I, I mean, they're basically two years behind us, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. And, and the playbook's there. I mean, the, the good thing is right, we know we're looking we're at human, human nature and a virus that's exactly the same for everybody. So it's not like there's going to be some wrinkle in China and the virus is going to behave differently. Right. It's going to behave exactly the same and the people are going to behave exactly the same. So you've got a pretty good roadmap as to what's going to happen. The, the big question is, you know, China's place in the global supply chain, we haven't had a country reopen that, that is in that position yet. So we, do, we just don't know how, how that's going to go down. So, but, so, but, but let, let's pivot a second. Let, let's go back to what you hinted at earlier on about this, this payrolls thing, because it, it is rather glaring what Powell did. And it didn't occur to me, obviously, <laughs> being the simpleton that I am, until I read what you said about it. And then I was like, ah, you know what? That actually starts to make a little bit more sense now. So so talk about that little pet theory of yours and let's kick that around for a minute. You think that makes sense? I don't know. I was I was uh, wrestling with whether I should actually share this crazy notion, but... Well, who, who knows, right? But, that, but we should crowdsource the intelligence on it because right, it's, well, it's an interesting see. thing to talk about. Oh my gosh, talk about bah humbug. But um, no, I mean, it just, what really got me thinking about this was, so we had the payroll numbers and in that report where they were up, whatever, 267,000, and the household survey was down, you know, 140,000 or I'm yeah. trying to remember these numbers. But um, and so Powell steps forward to the microphone and holds forth about how strong employment is after, you know, mainstream economists had started to pick up on this gap between the two and question the validity of the payroll number. But then days later, um, the Philadelphia Fed came out with their own study 
on the payroll numbers. And they concluded that just from March to June in that three-month period, the payroll survey was uh, overcounting payrolls by over $1 million. So they were kind of coming up with the same numbers that I had come up with. Well, you have to presume that Powell is aware of a study like that that you had hope. been done by the Philly Fed. Um, and if he wasn't aware of it, you know, the governor of the uh, Philly Fed, you know, probably sat down in the yeah. FOMC meeting and said, hey, buddies, you know, while we're hey, talking guys. about employment, you, you might want to look at this that my staff just did. So it, it just makes me puzzle as to why Powell would get up there and continue to focus on payrolls when really, as you survey all of the broader employment indicators, it stands out as the exception to the rule of weakness, which is evident everything from the NFIB small business survey to unemployment claims to the layoffs we're seeing, and even like the regional uh, Fed surveys and then ISMs, you know, the manufacturing and services, all of those, you know, to varying degrees have clearly slowed. Um, and I, so I'm always a cynic, so I assume that the the Fed has some kind of ulterior motive with everything. They're either stupid is what they're up to, and they just really yeah. are that oblivious, or they are aware of the numbers and they have some other objective here. And what's that other objective? And it seemed pretty clear to me that, uh, you know, he kept referencing the tightening in financial conditions as critical to achieving their policy goals, because yeah. that's the mechanism through which they're tightening. You know, they raise rates and the financial conditions tighten and that slows the economy. So he was sort of happy that f financial conditions had tightened and argued, it seemed to me, that they need to remain tight. Um, and so how do you do that? Maybe you use the cover of flawed employment and inflation data that create the perception that things are really yeah. too hot um, so that you have more wiggle room to raise rates. But that's just my harebrained scheme. But if you think about that, you know, there, there is a chance here that, because uh, I, I like to ascribe stupidity, but right. it, 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 but it's tough, right? Because you just think of the, the amount of intellectual firepower that they have at their beck and call it's a, it's a stretch to think that the 95,000 PhD they've got working for the right. Fed are all idiots, right? That's, that's a stretch. That would, be, that would be an outlier. So the way I look at it is that they've made an awful lot of mistakes over the last 30 years and they have created a dependence on them and a series of bubbles culminating in this, whatever, people call it the everything bubble, whatever you want to call it, but it is, it's, it's an enormous bubble in so many things that for the longest time it's been apparent that at some point they're going to have to inflict some pain on the market. They're going to have to try and get things back under control again because they just don't have any control at the moment. And so I wonder if, if this is an excuse. Inflation gives them the excuse to over-tighten, to push the economy into recession because they, they've got something to blame now. They can say we have to break the back of inflation, whip inflation now, we'll get the pin badges out again from the 70s. Right. And we're not doing this because we screwed up. We're doing it because we didn't let inflation get out of control. You saw how quickly it went to 9% and we've got to make sure that we crush it, blah, blah, blah. And it does give them the means by which to get rates. I mean, who would have thought we'd have got rates to where they've already got them without breaking things completely? I so sure if they can get them have. a little bit higher. Yeah, no, me neither. I mean, I, I, I would never have got this in a million years. But if they get them even higher, it just stores bullets in the in the magazine for for the next time right when they when they have to do and they can come that way they can come right into the rescue cut rates and say don't worry there's a recession we knew it was going to happen and we're going to we're going to save you we're going to get you out of it and we're going to cut rates by 25 basis points because you know they won't go they won't go 75 on the way down that's for right. sure and give it all back right i mean that's the only thing i can think of that makes any sense is that hey boys this inflation gives us a means to perhaps get out of Dodge without getting strung up by the townsfolk. Yeah. I mean, it, ultimately what they're doing is they're battling their own legacy that they yeah. built up over <laughs> yeah. the last 30 years. So if Powell fashions himself as the anti-Greenspan, Greenspan created the Greenspan put, and he's going to be the guy who removes the put. Um, right. I guess my point in that idea, in that paper was 
it's a much bigger job than Powell thinks it is if he imagines he can do it. It's not a matter of just deflating the excesses that were built up during the COVID pandemic with the stimulus bonanza that we had. Um, these excesses have been built up since 1987, yeah. basically. So it's a huge um, task. It's a monumental task for the Fed. Um, and uh, I think that it could be one of those be careful what you wish for things because yeah. of the size of the asset bubble they've inflated. But I think it seems like the FOMC is really aware of this feedback loop where the markets are still so convinced that they're going to pivot at any yeah. sign of weakness that anything they say that isn't really hawkish gets the market to rally, and then they have to be even more hawkish than they necessarily yeah. want to be, and then the market sell. You know, it's just like... Oh, the irony. I, it really is. <laughs> well, it's about but, time. But, but, like, but I, th I think for them, you know, if they can kill the speculative fever that built up, especially you know, post the, the stimulus checks in 2020, and they can kill the idea in people's minds that money's going to be free forever. That's really, if you can do those two things, um, and look, crypto's done a lot of the heavy lifting for them in the first. Yeah, in the, so I was just going to say that. <laughs> um, yeah. and, and, you know, the, the so-called ape stocks, meme stocks have done a, an awful lot of that too. If you can get the result that we saw in 2000, which is retail investors getting chased out of the market because, you know, I read somewhere recently that 80% of crypto investors are underwater now. Hmm. And that's the kind of number that says to, you know, we get the, the classic washout, we go, right, I'm never touching that stuff again. If they can kill that speculative fever and they can get people to realise that there is a positive cost of capital now, that's actually as good an outcome as you could probably hope for. Because at least from there you're talking to more rational actors. And we've seen, you know, look at, look at Tesla, right? one, of my, one of my pet stocks of the last number of years. Look at, look at what's happened to that. The speculation has been taken out of it. The froth has gone out of it. And now you see the permabulls like fighting with each other over Twitter about what Elon's going to do and how he should be kicked off the board and all these things that would never have thought to when the company was insanely overvalued. Now it's getting closer to some kind of realistic value. Everyone's upset about these things. But that's real destruction of some sort. And, and it's the destruction of the kind of attitudes that perpetuate this crazy, I don't even know what to call it now. It's this just insanity of mania. buying all these crazy... Mania. Yeah, mania. Yeah, <laughs> So if they can do those two things, if they can kill the speculative fever and they can convince people that, hey, you know, we, rates may not get back down below 3%. How far does that go in, in kind of getting them out of this mess, do you think? Well, that's the interesting question is, um, you know, how much pain will it really take uh, to get people dissuaded from the idea that, yeah. you know, things are going to go right back up again? And I worry, you know, we just basically mutually confess that we never thought the Fed would tighten as much as they have. Um, in fact, I will uh, admit that at the beginning of the year, I didn't think they'd complete the taper because I thought that that would create so much friction in the Treasury market that they'd be forced to, uh, you know, maintain the quantitative easing. Um, so fooey on me. But um, I guess, you know, what I wrestle with is that and Thomas Honig has made this point repeatedly, who the former um, Federal Reserve uh, governor, and he has come out and said, look, the crucial test for the Federal Reserve won't be how far they push rates, but how far they hold them there before yeah. they do anything else, because that's going to be so critical. If they raise rates um, and then immediately cut, which is what the Fed funds futures market have priced in, you know, they'll yeah. hit a peak in June and then they'll be cutting rates in July or whatever um, the timeline is, um, that's going to be crucial to kind of uh, getting rid of this whole put psychology. And we'll see if they can do it. What I'm worried about is that I think about 2022 as the re-rating portion of this whole tightening um, experiment where the market's basically just adjusted to a new level, higher level of interest. Right. And in 2023, I think we're going to have the economic fallout 
that we deal with as a consequence of higher rates. I mean, basically, the only part of the economy that really suffered this year was housing um, and things generally slowed. But you haven't had a major uh, impact from the the higher rates on borrowers. And I think that's going to be the story for 2023, both at the consumer level, but I'm really concerned about the corporate sector where they've got a massive amount of debt to roll at rates that will be double or triple in some cases what they were borrowing at prior. And there are a lot of companies out there that just don't have the wherewithal to manage that kind of interest, the increase in their their debt service. So I think that could be the story is that you have the Fed trying to deflate this bubble. And right now they feel like, hey, so far it's been great. As you said, like it's been very orderly considering this massive, unprecedented speed and magnitude of the rate hikes. But maybe that shoe is going to drop in 2023. but I guess we'll find out, won't we? Well, we'll definitely find out. But that's a perfect segue, and thank you for doing that for me, um, <laughs> into, this, into, into the corporate credit markets. Because, look, you've been talking about the consumer for some time now and kind of screaming into the void because nobody wanted to listen. And then slowly but surely all the data comes out and people can see the struggles of consumer. And then this is the main reason why the, the, the cries for higher wages are so vociferous. It's not because they feel they're entitled to them is because they need them, right? They just can't afford to live their lives with the, the lack of savings cushion they have and and the, and the expense of everything. But we'll come back to that if we've got time in a minute and, and get an update on that. But I, but I want to pivot to that corporate credit sector because, you know, once again, this is this is kind of the, your new bugbear. Um, <laughs> and any time and and you get a new bugbear, that means it's a bugbear that an awful lot of other people are going to get in about 18 months' time, probably. What, what do so, they say about a broken clock, you know, right twice a day? Oh, come on now. now if yeah, I just don't, continue don't do to that. beat the table enough don't on this. Don't do that. Come oh, on, Stephanie. It's me you're talking to. So, <laughs> let's, so let's talk about this. Let's talk about this corporate credit sector because um, the, the teaser you gave us there about the level rates are going to be at when all these companies have to roll over. Talk us through some of the numbers so people get some perspective about how big a problem this is because... You're right. No one's really talking about it. It's it's all the focus is all landed on the consumer, and you've moved on. You were there last right. year, like okay, catch up, buddies. So let's Aww. talk about this corporate credit sector so people can get ahead of that. Just run us through the numbers and what you're worried about. Well, I think that's a, a, an interesting way to put it because the consumer people have finally come around to this idea that you can't look at the averages. You've got this skew where you've got a lot of people, a few handful of people who have a lot of money, and then a huge group of people that have none. Basically, one group has all the assets, one has all the debt, one has savings, one has blah, blah, blah. So in the, the, uh, I guess what I'm saying is that myth of the strong consumer is starting to be shattered. And I think you'll see the same thing in the corporate space where the divergence between the haves and the have-nots in the corporate sector is probably, unbelievably, even more profound than it is in the consumer space, which is... Not something most people, I think, understand. No. Um, when you look at these, people will reference like the the strong balance sheets of the S and P five hundred companies, and they point to the you know some two trillion dollars in cash on their balance sheets. Well, the top ten companies in the S and P have more cash, substantially more cash, than the bottom four hundred combined. And those yeah. are again, we're talking about the the largest 500 companies in the country. I mean, expand the lens and look at the largest thousand company or two thousand or five thousand. The cash positions must be even weaker for those people. So, um, you know, we've also heard about these uh, these zombie corporations that have arisen mm-hmm. in this era of zero percent uh, credit, basically, and they subsist on the ability to borrow at zero forever um, because they just aren't generating any income. <laughs> you know, they don't have, yeah. they, like George Costanza, they have no earnings, no prospects, and they live with their parents, basically, <laughs> right? <laughs> so, um, so I think about these zombie companies, and together they have a trillion dollars in debt. And I think of that as sort of the equivalent of the subprime market back in 2006, 2007, when that started to come undone. Um, and what's going to be interesting to see is how far the exposure to that $1 trillion in debt that really should go up in a puff of smoke um, is going to be. And you have seen sort of this renaissance of the CLOs. Remember all the three-letter yeah. exotica yep. that we, oh my God, that we had just forgotten about and now it's all back again. But um, The TLAs, yeah, the TLAs. 
Right. <laughs> right. Three letters. Yeah. Um, so the CLOs could become a, another headline story in 2023 because they're the largest buyer of all these levered loans which is primarily yeah. the channel through which a lot of these zombie corporations have managed to finance themselves. So, and their requirements, you know, I'm no expert on CLOs, but there's a requirement that no more than I think seven and a half or 8% of the uh, security itself can hold the lowest rating of these right. levered loans. So any of them that they get downgraded will force the CLO manager to, figure out what they're going to do. And, and the and the normal thing that they would do is they just go out and buy a lot of high-quality paper to balance it out and bring the, the um, ratio back into line. But we've already seen that the issuance of all this stuff has evaporated, not surprisingly, yeah. on the uh, massive increase in interest rates. So that's going to be a challenge that we'll be dealing with. But just for raw numbers, um, you know, if you're a junk-rated borrower, um, we're not even talking about these you know, really the levered loans, which is another swath yeah. below and, that. And I am, I am a junk-rated borrower, don't worry about that, <laughs> for sure. Oh, don't brag. <laughs> um, so the junk borrowers were borrowing at 4% at the end of last year. And I think as of the latest number, it's around eight and three quarters right now. Right. So those right. rates have more than doubled. And you have to figure just... Assume you're a zombie corporation that couldn't service your debt. That's sort of the definition of these zombie corporations is they couldn't service their debt out of existing income. So if they couldn't do that at four, how are they going to do it at eight and three quarters? Presumably, they're not going to be able to do it and they'll have to um, either get creative or blow up. So, (laughs) um, yeah. You know, I don't know how many more Sam Bankman freed uh, hucksters are out there who can persuade people to give them money, even though they're a failing operation. I don't know. I guess we'll find out in 2023. But uh, there'll be plenty. Don't worry about that. But but, <laughs> but what does that do for the Fed's position? Because again, I don't think they're going to want to give up these hard-fought positive rates they've created. Right? I don't think they're going to give up what they've managed to hike. Now they're going to need that for a rainy day. So do they? Uh, and yet, on the other side of that, this what you just talked about there is a real problem that they're going to have to deal with because if they just step away and go, hey, not our issue, yeah. then we're going to see an implosion in credit markets. We're going to see um, companies shutting down by the bucket load and we're going to see unemployment rise significantly, which is obviously ultimately their mandate. So so what do they do? Do they set up some kind of, you know, bolstered by their quote-unquote success with QE, do they set up some kind of facility that buys or helps roll over junk wow. debt and helps bridge the gap? I mean, I, I, I'm just curious to think what they could possibly do other than, oh, well, let's go, we'll cut rates again right. and go back to the same old game. It's a great question. And I mean, I, I guess I've sort of figured things would have to get really bad. I mean, remember Bernanke's famous isolated and contained from the subprime prices? Oh, I yes. mean, <laughs> um, words that shall live in infamy. But <laughs> um, I, I expect we'll probably hear something similar to that when this first starts to, uh, you know, become an issue and the Fed will largely dismiss it so that they can maintain their their tight policy. They don't want to give up on all the progress, like you said, no. they've made. But I don't know. I, I guess I need to think about it more, Grant, because the, where I feel like the rubber hits the road on this whole topic is when it comes home to roost on corporate pe- on uh, public pensions, um, right. because you have to figure like who was buying all this garbage, and the people who most urgently needed to buy this garbage were the pensions who were trying to make eight percent return mandates in a zero yeah. percent risk free world. So you know they loaded the boat on this, and as we discovered with FTX. Um, they were exposed to this and they didn't even know it. Like the Ontario teacher's pension, it turned out, had a big position in FTX. And they probably had it through Sequoia Capital because they've been pursuing all these alternative investments yeah. to get that yield. So even those who didn't directly get into this stuff surely are going to find out that they have exposure to a lot of garbage. Um, and so I feel like when that comes home to roost on the on the pension front, that's going to bring it to a point where there has to be a policy response. I don't know how long the corporate credit bust can devolve 
without a response. But I know Congress is going to stand up and say, hey, you know, we can't bail out Goldman Sachs and all these guys right. in 2008 and not bail out the firemen, the teachers, the police, etc. I don't know. That's my... Well, I mean, we've we've seen this in the UK. We've already seen talk of oh, yeah. you know, benefits being benefits being cut, and you know, we're, we're we're bound to see retirement ages getting pushed out. I mean, we saw um, I forget who's prime minister of the UK this week. I forget whose turn it is this week now. <laughs> Don't uh, whatever ask his me. name is, <laughs> Sunak talking, you know, out there pleading with the the kind of over fifties to come back into the workforce, and there's there's all this kind of stuff that you can see that. As you say, the the problem here, there is a time bomb in the pension system right around the Western world that, again, we've talked about, not just you and I, but a lot of people have talked about for a long, long time because it's quite simple. The numbers just don't add up. And, and if you are if you need to generate returns they've needed to with no way of doing it without risk, then of course they're going to take all these risky investments on, on board. And junk debt has been ground zero for that because it's just respectable enough Right. That uh, you know, that no one really worries about the junk. It's become the word junk has well. In fact, it's been rebranded high right. yield. Right. That's that we now call it high yield. We don't call them junk bonds right. anymore. We exactly. call them high yield. Right. So yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know how that plays out, but I, I suspect the response is likely to come on the other end of it. Not trying to save the bonds and save the pensions, but try and screw the pension holders huh. who are. I mean, that, I think that's the first thing they'll try yeah. because. If they can get away with that without too much blowback, that's the smart thing to do because then you set the bar for generations to follow. But I just wonder in the time we're in now where, as we talked about earlier on, people you know, need pay hikes because they can't afford to, to live, they need their pensions. And I, I just don't think that is going to be a response that's going to have any political traction whatsoever. Yeah, no, I agree with you. Also, the math is such that I don't think they could claw back enough to right. plug these holes. I mean, right now, here in the U.S., the combined public and private pension shortfall today is $7 trillion. Yeah. I mean, right. that's that's a third of GDP, basically. It's almost the size of the Fed's balance sheet. And that's now, in 2008, it doubled, you know, so yeah. during that uh, asset deflation. So are we going to 14 trillion? And then how on earth do you claw back 14 trillion worth of, um, you know, uh, obligations? Plus that number, the 7 trillion shortfall, assumes that they're going to make 8% next year and the right, year after right. that and the year after <laughs> exactly. that, right? And yeah. after this decade plus of outsized returns, you'd have to expect that we're going to have a decade plus probably of subpar returns, I would guess. I don't know. Call yeah. me, you know, a curmudgeon. Yeah. But uh, I don't think we're going to get 8% returns for the next decade. Um, and that's what's built into that $7 trillion shortfall. I mean, God forbid they only get 6%. I mean, <laughs> what's that number going to be? Well, you know, it's interesting because we've had this week, we've had this one2 trillion dollar spending bill passed, right, to, to, to quote, unquote, keep the government running. And, you know, interestingly, you're starting to see a lot more pushback about the money being sent to Ukraine, for example, you know, because it's in the tens of billions and people are starting to get weary of having, you know, not enough money to feed their families and sending all this money overseas to Ukraine. And, and it's that kind of political tension whether it be pension holders that are benefits confiscated from them or it's people, you know, who want the government to do something about the cost of living crisis. Um, you know, and even King Charles mentioned the cost of living crisis in his first Christmas speech. <laughs> He's um, such so a man they are of aware. the people. So they are aware. <laughs> they, they are aware, aware of okay. these things, which is good. Um, um, uh, although he also mentioned that he didn't get the tin of caviar that you usually <laughs> send him. So I'm not quite sure what I happened there. I going to come back to bite me in the ass. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, no, but, but look, seriously, it, it, it makes you wonder alongside all the other stuff that we've got to worry about is there there is no political stability anywhere right now in, in you know, across the Western world. And the cost of living crisis just really agitates that even further. So once again, you know, all eyes are going to come on the central banks. And, you know, I wrote about this um, a couple of weeks ago. There's been a real shift here. If you look at what happened in Australia back in November, you know, Philip um, Lowe, the governor of the RBA, actually apologised uh, on primetime TV 
to every Australian who had basically taken him at his word when he said there'd be no rate rises until 2024, so you're fine to go out and borrow. And of course, guess what people did? They went out and borrowed because there weren't going to be any rate rises. So he actually apologised to everybody. We've had a similar uh, response from the Bank of New Zealand governor. They've apologised too. And so there's there's a, 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 an element of vulnerability creeping into the central banks that we haven't seen at all. I mean, there was no way... I think we'll ever see Jay Powell apologise. Um, the next cab off the rank, if there was going to be one, would be Tiff Macklem at the Bank of Canada, I would think, because he went out and literally, I've got the quote somewhere, I don't know where it is now, but but said, you know, if, if you're a business or a homeowner and you want to borrow, you can borrow safe and secure that rates aren't going up for a very long time. Mm. You know, and two years later, you look at what's happened. So they don't have that sheen of invincibility that they once had. And that makes you suspect that when all these problems come home to roost on a political um, side of things, that the natural scapegoat is going to be central bank independence, yeah, such yeah. as it is, um, which we know what happens then, right? We know what happens. Rates right. will get slashed to zero and the spigots will get opened. And, hey, you know, you, you, you want to own land and you want to own our our mutual friend gold right. for sure at that point yeah. right because I, every every way i look at this the answer is more of the same just is it voluntarily more is it forced more is it balance sheet expansion is it low rates is it both and the answer is probably all of the above Oh, I'm with you. I think that's so well said. You know, is it voluntary? Is it forced on them? And it doesn't really matter which one it is. No. We know where we're going. And, the, you know, the other question is just how quickly do we get there and how much pain do we have to endure before they get to that moment? Um, but I'm totally with you. And again, you know, for me, I guess I'm a simpleton and I get focused on one stupid you know, bugaboo or be in my bonnet or whatever. But for me, that that also comes around to the pensions again, because it's not just us that has this. It's every Western, you know, it's every major developed economy yeah. that has an aging population that they've made obligations that they can't possibly deliver on. Um, and it's the only way out for them is to print the money to make good on that or have, you know, like you're talking about, Real civil uprising, possibly, where people say, look, you know, I why does that guy, um, you know, why am I getting screwed out of my pension while that guy's getting a student loan bailout or whatever they're right, getting right. this week? Yeah. Um, and, and so that, you know, it comes back to, like you said, you want to own those hard assets because every major currency is going to have to be debased to some magnitude because we all are in the same um, untenable situation where our, our debts are beyond that which we're able to pay. And then you see things like, you know, the major global creditors, like China, for example, mm -hmm. saying, you know what, we don't need to lend the rest of you guys our money. We'd rather stockpile resources. We'd rather get cozy with Russia and trade with them directly and local currency, blah, blah, blah. Um, that only accelerates the time frame on all of this happening, I would think, but you've done a lot on that. What what is your outlook on? Yeah, I think that? I think that's exactly what's what's been happening for some time now, and it's it's been you know almost labelled a conspiracy theory that any idea that 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 you know Russia and China and the Saudis and the Turks and the Iranians would want to get together and try and shut out the dollar has been you know banished to the realms of conspiracy theory land. But it's, it's look, it's happening. And the speed at which it happens is is debatable. You know, we've seen the, the Central Bank of Ghana buy more gold to trade gold directly for, for oil. Um, so this kind of, this system that it's been clear is a solution to a problem that everybody but the US has is is slowly but surely being being put in place. And it's not going to be a sudden, they're not going to have everything in place, then flick a switch and go, okay, right, we're done. But you've been pointing out for a long time now, you know, you focused on the, the, the lack of foreign buying of treasuries and where that shortfall is being made up. You've talked about, you know, how the Chinese have been selling and the Russians sold all their treasuries basically a couple of years ago. And that shortfall, the Fed has been picking up the slack for quite some time now. But again, you know, we, we're getting to the point where whether you like it or not, and, and I pass no judgment on it, the US is as weak as it's been 
in terms of its place in the global financial system, albeit at a time where the dollar is still king. You know, it's it's it's. I remember Billy Connolly once said that the the the, the definition of intelligence is being able to listen to the William Tell Overture and not think about the Lone Ranger. And so this idea of having <laughs> of having two Separate. having these two ideas right. yeah. holding them in your head at the same time, it, I think it's really important for people to be able to do right now and say, yeah, look, the dollar is king and it does rule the financial system, but that doesn't mean it's always going to be that way. And while this thing won't be, a, a, as I said, a flick of a switch, there is a tipping point somewhere down the road, who knows where, who knows what numbers, what metrics really matter, but there is a tipping point somewhere where people just say, look, we don't need that anymore. And if they don't need it, um, that creates a very tricky situation for the US, given the debt and the demographic, uh, no, not demographic, sorry, given the debt, um, the debt constraints that they're currently under. Yeah. Well, I always think about the, the flip of that switch coming from the petrodollar. You know, if, if, uh, the major oil producers, OPEC, Saudi Arabia, said, hey, we're no longer going to price our oil in dollars. That would be the thing. And that's always yep. been the risk out there that people reference, and it's been poo-pooed for decades as, oh, I mean, that, that it was never going to happen. Um, and so I thought this trip um, by Xi Jinping to Saudi Arabia was really mm -hmm. critical and hugely symbolic, but also really important and um, one of the things that I learned from that trip that I didn't know and just really resonated with me is that they are now introducing Mandarin in the Saudi school system. And to oh, me, I didn't know that. Yeah, yeah to me, that was like, that basically tells you everything you need to know about where we're going and what the timeline is on this. I mean, they are, that's the future. So wake up, folks, because this idea that the dollar is going to be king. And uh, I, yeah. I think... We have such an unbelievable amount of hubris about the dollars, the reserve currency. And, it, you know, every time I used to travel around with those charts, as I, you know, I, I am a broken record. I've been talking about this forever. Um, but, you know, when I would show the charts of, of withering foreign purchases of our treasuries, the response would be, well, I mean, they're just recycling those dollars into other dollar assets because there's nowhere else for them to, where, what are they going to do, buy Europe? Yen, ha, you know, right. give me a break. Well, hey, you know, in the meantime, they can use those dollars to buy oil, gold, um, you know. Right. copper. Food, right, <laughs> yeah. everything. And and they're doing it big time. Um, so anyway. Well, it's, it's funny you bring, you bring up the yen there because that's another, that's another thing worth talking about. You know, this move by the Bank of Japan last week because, you know, the, the yen's had like a 25% off sale. <laughs> right before the period in time where they're going to say, okay, well, we, we are flagging this. No matter what we say post, post the event, we are flagging that things have changed here. We're worried about inflation. Rates are probably going to have to go higher. The, the peg on the 10-year is going to have to probably be widened gently and then let go altogether once they find some equilibrium because the RBA in Australia proved to them that you can't just take that thing away and expect any kind of stability. And suddenly you have a whole bunch of overvalued stocks in the US and you have Japan, right, which is littered with phenomenal companies, really well-run companies trading cheaply that you can buy in a currency that's on its knees. Um, and more importantly, perhaps, you're going to see an enormous amount of uh, money repatriated to Japan. You know, the big four life insurers in Japan have been buying US uh, bonds for years in a massively outsized um, allocation from from domestic bonds, if they can get a return back home in their own currency, there's going to be a, a massive shift of of assets out of the U.S. and Europe probably into back home to Japan, and that's that's a huge change. It's a huge change, and the, you know these are the kind of shifts that um, the kind of second and third uh, ramifications of these moves. Everyone sees the Bank of Japan and talks about, oh wow, you know the the, the the Bank of Japan are maybe going to change their um, their interest rate policy, or maybe get rid of scrap the yield curve control. But the knock-on effects from that are enormous. And to you know to see uh, the Nikkei go down a couple of percent, and to see that the initial knee-jerk moves is always really really interesting yeah. to me because because you're getting a, a setup here um, in a real economy that has real companies that are run really well that. You know, it, it has a place in the global supply chain. They're 
international conglomerates. It's an extraordinary opportunity. And again, that's another shift because that will attract a lot of capital, a lot of capital from um, uh, these, these Middle Eastern nations if they can get a return in Japanese bonds all of a sudden and sell overpriced treasuries, sell overpriced European debt, whatever it may be. Again, this is just another move from west to east of capital that's going to find a better valued and perhaps even in many cases a more friendly home. Yeah. Now, that's such an incredibly great point. Um, and, you know, like you said, you're, the knock-on consequences are myriad. You, you no longer have Mr. and Mrs. Watanabe who were always, you know, religiously sending money yeah. outside the country. Um, no, it's really... Uh, it's fascinating to see what's happening with Japan, too. Now they're going to have the third largest military budget. I mean, they're really, right. that's another area where if they invest in that, that could really be a huge boost to their economy as well. Um, and I guess the, the only risk in the near term to them is how much they're geared to China and what happens there. But as you said, you know, if China is going to be forced to reopen, it would seem like at the margin that's probably going to be better for them except that higher oil price which i yeah. thought i thought that was the catalyst for the for the boj's action was that you know we're now in a world where you don't want your currency to be weak because the one thing you want is to lower your energy costs right. and for now it's priced in dollars so I, there's some of that going on i guess although well look, again the chinese and the japanese um I, 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 there's no love lost between right. those two countries but what do they say? Dance with the guy who brung you or whatever it's said, whatever that, whatever that old Texas saying is. And so if there's a better relationship to be had locally in that eastern block than there is trading with the West, there are plenty of reasons why it makes sense to put past enmity behind you and, and, and come together and, and, and do the kind of deals that we're seeing between Russia and China and, and the Saudis, as you point out. But let's um, say, before we finish, I've just looked at the time. This hour has just flown by. Um, super terrific and happy it's been Aww. every second of it. <laughs> but let's, let's, let's just talk about gold quickly because you and I certainly have that in common. And yes. um, I, I was funny, I was reading something the other day, one of these kind of year-end things, talking about how disappointing it had been that gold had done nothing all year. And I'm like, oh my god! You know what the dollar did this year? I mean, if if you again, you, when you when you talked about could could they get rates here without breaking the market? I didn't think that for a second. If you had told me that the dollar was going to move double digits on the year, and told me to guess where the gold price would be, I'd have been you know, like twelve, thirteen hundred. So to see what gold's done, and to see the headlines about you know the biggest year for purchases for central banks, I can't remember if it's ever or certainly in the last sort of post Bretton Woods era. What's going on with gold? Is it finally starting to be an asset that people actually want to own rather than just speculate on the price? Well, I'm dying to hear your whole answer to this question. But um, I will say um, I was traveling around doing my year-end flag waving and I was visiting a, a hedge fund. And the, one of the guys asked me at the tail end of the meeting, he said, if you had to say one thing that surprised you in 2022 in the markets, what would it be? And my answer was, how well gold did. So yeah. I'm I'm the opposite of, you know, most people. Yeah, I thought I'm with you. had you told me the Fed was gonna tighten faster than than Volcker um and that the dollar would be as strong as it was, I would have thought gold would have been absolutely destroyed. And they're doing QT on top of it. Yeah. So um but so I've been very impressed with the way gold has performed this year and that makes me very optimistic for twenty twenty three. Um but you know generally uh, my whole thesis is that you, you're going to want to have this shift away from paper assets to hard assets. And I think one thing that uh, will continue to benefit gold and helped a lot this year, obviously, was the bursting of the crypto bubble, where yep. you know people had viewed that wrongly, in my view, as a modern day substitute for gold. Um, and I think it's revealed itself to be anything but um, so I, while I don't think crypto is going away, um, I, I don't think that it has uh, lived up to all the promise uh, that it yeah. would be, uh, you know, a good hedge against the debasement of fiat money. So, but I, I think we'll get to see more of that in 2023. I'm obviously very bullish on on gold. Yeah. So you lay it on me because you've done a ton of work on that. No, look, I, I feel similarly. You know, I've been I've been incredibly impressed with what gold's done this year, which is basically nothing, right? It's done nothing. It's just sat there and it's appreciated a little bit, but it's been pretty steady. We haven't had any major 
drawdowns. We haven't seen any kind of major panic. So, which tells me that there's been a bid underneath gold all year. And and when the data started coming out of central banks a couple of months ago, it was clear what that bid was. And to me, that's arguably the most important thing here is that the central banks are voracious buyers of gold bullion, right? They want to they want to own gold bullion. And we've had all kinds of kind of stuff about this in the past, about repatriating their gold and bringing it home and all that stuff, which is obviously important. But at the end of the day, more important than where they hold it is the fact that they hold it. And to see so much gold going into vaults where, look, it's not going to come out again if the price goes up 100 bucks or 200 bucks, right? That, that gold's going away for a period of time. And, and, and if you see that in conjunction with people divesting themselves of treasury bonds and you start to see uh, sovereign bonds all around the world perform poorly. And, and look, right across these central banks, you look at the state of their balance sheets. Yeah. Um, you know, the Swiss lost a sixth of GDP in just the third quarter alone. They're zombie corporations is what they yeah, are. Yeah, they're zombie corporations, exactly. <laughs> exactly. But, but you know, as I wrote in, in, in my last letter, there, there's one really easy way to, to shore up the balance sheet of every central bank in the world, and that's to revalue gold to the market. You know, that, that will do it. That will make them all instantly solvent again. And what's, so the, what's the number? If, if the Federal Reserve were to do that, you, well, you look, it's, it's on their balance sheet at $42.22, right? It's trading at 1800 give or take. So it, it instantly makes them solvent again. And so I'm not saying that they're going to do it because they'll fight tooth and nail against doing that. But ultimately, the fact that they're, they're all buying more gold tells me something that maybe isn't reflected in the price because people are just speculating on the price. And, and because it hasn't gone up in times of inflation... Um, there's a lot of people that bought gold simply because they thought, oh, inflation, therefore gold will go up. And it hasn't. And they're kind of disappointed in it. And, you know, I, I, I get that that didn't work. But, I, you know, I, I don't think that's deep enough thinking about what gold is and what it's there to do. Um, you know, if you're looking to buy something that's just going to give you a decent return, is going to go up in price, there are plenty of things you can buy that give you a much better chance of doing that than gold. But if you want something that's going to do what gold does, which is nothing, Right, gold doesn't do anything; right, it just sits right. there. It just sits there. Yeah. But you know where it is, and <laughs> sort of you know like it's me. never worth zero. <laughs> 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 so I don't know. I, I think I think twenty twenty three is a very very. It's going to be a very interesting year for gold. I'm I'm excited to see what happens in that particular space. Um, do you see anything that, else that looks appealing to you? I mean, are are you silver? Apparently, a lot of people are talking about silver. Do you do you have other areas that you're looking at that you think Japan? Obviously, I loved your Japan. Yeah, your call I, yeah. Japan. No, I'm, I'm looking very closely at Japan. I think Japan is going to be a really really interesting interesting place. I'm going to go to Japan this year because I haven't been for a while and have a look around. But um, yeah, look, I, I I think the the commodities trade is is absolutely going to be there. It's not going to be a one way trade. Because I suspect we're going to see, um, you know, actions by the central banks that will that will make changes. But, you know, I, I'm not a speculator. I don't look to try and buy something that I'm going to make a quick turn on. And I think for the next five years, you've got a really, really strong tailwind behind you to own commodities for sure. Um, and, and you know, for me, the king of those commodities is gold. Because if if we get the kind of environment we're talking about, where you know rates come down again and uh, trade moves from west to east and this eastern bloc solidifies and has less and less need for dollars. Um, like you said, right, they, they're, if they're not going to own dollars, they are going to want to own safe assets. Treasuries were once thought of as safe assets. And, and while they likely still are, it's for probably different reasons. So I think your, your point earlier on is absolutely right, that China is going to stockpile copper and, and zinc and, uh, and, and, and gold. And so, yeah, I, I like commodities. I think Emerging markets, I think, selectively, I think there'll be some very interesting things to do there. But yeah, for me, uh, I, I'm, I'm fascinated by Japan again, which takes me full circle. You know, I started yeah. my career in Japan, in Japan back in the 80s. So it's nice to actually have my focus drawn back to something that I've been focused on for 40 odd years and give me a chance to go revisit it and see where the value might be the next year. Yeah, it's amazing how the worm turns, doesn't it? Yeah, right, you know the truth. <laughs> right, you know the truth. Oh well, Steffi, it is, uh, it is long past our, our hour. I know, uh, we, we had a super terrific hour and some. <laughs> hour and change, super terrific happy hour and change. Which but, made uh, it extra super. Thank you so yeah. much. 
Oh, listen, I'll, I'll take every minute talking to you I can get. So <laughs> thanks for taking the time to do this on Boxing Day. I know you're a, a big Boxing Day celebrant. I know that Boxing Day is a big day for you. Yeah, I'm going to go get my boxing workout in. Ha, ha, ha. There you go. Well, listen, uh, thanks to you out there to listening to us. We will be back with another super terrific happy hour at some point soon, I hope, because I suspect there's going to be plenty to talk about. In the meantime, uh, I'm going to do this for you, Steph. You can follow Steph on Twitter at SPOMBOY. And if you don't do that already, then you damn well should because you're missing out. And you should also go to macromavens.com and check out the amazing work Steph does. Email her and ask her for some samples because I think once you get those, you'll want to sign up because her work is extraordinary. Thanks to you for listening. A happy new year to everybody. Steph, a happy new year to you. And hopefully I'll see you in person in the very near future. Uh, the check is in the mail. Okay, <laughs> uh, I hope to see you soon. Nothing we discussed during the Super Terrific Happy Hour should be considered as investment advice. This conversation is for informational and hopefully entertainment purposes only. So while we hope you find it both informative and entertaining, to say nothing of super and terrific, of course, please do your own research or speak to a financial advisor before putting a dime of your money into these crazy markets.